0: Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. This month, Democracy Now! turns 27. Since our very first broadcast in 1996, Democracy Now! has been committed to fearless, independent journalism. At this critical moment, when press freedom is under attack, our reporting is more important than ever. To celebrate our 27th anniversary, please donate today at democracynow.org. We're counting on you. Thank you so much. This is Democracy Now!,
1: it was not like any other earthquake. The roads were destroyed. Our houses were demolished. There were no buildings left. Whole cities were flattened. Everything disappeared. We can feed ourselves here, but no one knows how we're going to live.
0: As the death toll in Sir- Turkey and Syria nears 42,000, continuing to rise, we go to southern Turkey to two cities hit hard by the devastating earthquakes. More than a million people have been left homeless, including many Syrian refugees. Refugees. Then we look at the spiraling global economic crisis from Pakistan to Sri Lanka to Lebanon, where protesters today attacked six banks, setting some of them on fire.
2: What are you Lebanese people waiting for to go down and take your rights from this mafia of thieves and criminals that is ruling? Where are the human rights? There is no electricity, no water, nothing at all in this country. Don't they feel us while sitting in their palaces? They don't feel the people. They see us as sheep. We won't stay silent about our life's worth.
0: Then more on the bomb train in Ohio where a train derailment turned the community at East Palestine into a toxic disaster zone. The train company, Norfolk Southern, refused to attend last night's first town hall, leaving many questions unanswered. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The combined death toll in Turkey and Syria from last week's massive earthquakes is coming to 42,000. Many more expected to die or have been not counted. Earlier today, rescue workers pulled a 17-year-old girl out of a rubble of collapsed building in the Turkish province of Marash, 248 hours after the earthquake earthquake struck. In Syria, relief workers blamed U.S.-led sanctions against the Syrian government for hindering rescue and recovery efforts. This is Mohammed Khalil, a medical worker in Aleppo.
3: Sanctions on Syria led to a shortage of drugs for some chronic diseases and for cancer and chemotherapy treatments. Due to the disaster, we urge the U.S. and Western countries to lift those sanctions on us. Syria has been plagued with a grave humanitarian disaster for 13 years
0: and is still
2: struggling now.
0: After headlines, we'll be joined by two guests in Turkey for the latest. A Russian court Wednesday sentenced journalist Maria Ponomarenko to six years in a penal colony for spreading false information, unquote, after she accused Russian forces of bombing a theater in Mariupol, Ukraine, last March. Amnesty internationals accused Russia of a war crime over the bombing, which killed hundreds of people. Moscow blamed the explosion on Ukrainian nationalists, addressing the court before her sentencing. Ponomarenko concluded with the defiant word Quote, no totalitarian regime has ever been as strong as before its collapse, she said. In Buffalo, New York, the white teenager who murdered 10 people in a racially motivated attack in a predominantly black neighborhood last May in a supermarket has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. There were dramatic scenes in the courtroom Wednesday as family members of the victims confronted the gunman just 18 years old when he published a racist manifesto online before using a legally purchased Bushmaster AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle. To systematically seek out and murder black people at a supermarket. The killer live streamed the attack on social media. This is Barbara Massey, sister of shooting victim Catherine Massey.
2: You go, come to our city and decide you don't like black people. Man, you don't know a damn thing about black people. We're human. We like our kids to go to good schools. We love our kids. We never go in those no neighborhoods and take people out. Don't do it.
0: Massey was interrupted as a man lunged at the convicted mass murderer. He was restrained by court officers as the gunman was rushed from the courtroom. The Erie County District Attorney later said the man would not be charged for the outburst. This is Simone Crawley, granddaughter of shooting victim Ruth Whitfield, speaking during victim impact statements.
4: We all know the pure hatred and motivations behind your heinous crime, and we are here to tell you that you failed. We will continue to elevate and be everything that you are not, everything that you hate, and everything that you intended to destroy. We are extremely aware that you are not a lone wolf, but a pawn of a larger organized network of domestic terrorists. And to that network we say, we as a people are unbreakable.
0: The mass murderer apologized for what he did and said, I don't want anyone to be inspired by me and what I did. In El Paso, Texas, a shooter killed one person and injured three others Wednesday at a shopping mall. The shooting took place at this Yellow Vista shopping center, which is located across a large parking lot from the Walmart, where 23 people were killed in a 2019 racist shooting massacre. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 72 mass shootings since the start of 2023, an average of more than one per day. In Chicago, the father of the shooter at last year's July 4th parade was indicted Wednesday, accused of helping his son obtain a firearm license in 2019. 21-year-old Robert Cremo is charged with 117 felonies after the attack, which killed seven people and left 48 others wounded. Meanwhile, hundreds of Michigan State University students in East Lansing rallied at the state capitol Wednesday, held a silent sit-in protest to demand lawmakers enact new gun control laws following Monday's mass shooting, which killed three people, critically wounding five. January 6th, special counsel Jack Smith has subpoenaed President Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to testify and provide documents about Trump's efforts to overturn his defeat in the 2020 election. Meadows was involved in the infamous phone call in which Trump pressured Georgia's secretary of state to find 11,780 votes after Trump's narrow loss to Biden in Georgia. Meadows also reportedly burned documents in his office fireplace in the White House during the final week Weeks of the Trump administration. This comes after former Vice President Mike Pence said this week he will invoke the Constitution's speech or debate clause to oppose his subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith. Meanwhile, portions of a report by an Atlanta-area special grand jury into Trump's actions to subvert the results of the 2020 election will be released today after a Fulton County judge ordered them be made public. District Attorney Fonnie Willis is considering whether to bring criminal charges against Trump and his allies. Grand jurors heard from 75 witnesses, including Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani. South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and his— Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, Willis is also investigating a group of 16 Georgia Republicans who served as fake presidential electors for Donald Trump. In Virginia, Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin has blocked a bill that would ban search warrants to access personal data on menstrual tracking apps. The measure was put forward by Democrats in an effort to prevent private health information from being used in prosecutions related to abortions following the overturning last year of Roe v. Wade. Abortion is currently legal in Virginia until the 27th week of pregnancy, but Youngkin is pushing to enact a 15-week abortion ban and favors prosecuting providers who violate abortion laws. Warning to our audience, our next stories contain graphic footage. The United Nations says 73 people are missing and presumed dead after their inflatable rubber boat deflated off the coast of Libya Tuesday. Eleven bodies were recovered, along with the tattered remains of their boat. Last year, the UN's International Organization for Migration, the IOM, recorded 1,450 deaths of migrants attempting to cross the Mediterranean, and more than 130 people have died so far this year in Panama. A bus carrying 66 U.S.-bound migrants plunged off a cliff Wednesday, killing at least 39 people, including children. Some of the victims are believed to be from Ecuador and Cuba. The migrants had traveled through the Darien Gap, a perilous stretch of jungle between Colombia and Panama. In climate news, a team of researchers reports Antarctica's enormous Thwaites Glacier is on the verge of collapse, with warm water seeping under the weakest parts of the glacier and melting it from below. Researchers deployed a robotic submarine to penetrate the vast ice sheet, which is roughly the size of Florida. They found the glacier susceptible to rapid and irreversible ice loss that could raise global sea levels by more than half a meter. Its collapse could destabilize surrounding glaciers that would raise the Earth's oceans by a further three meters, or nearly ten feet. And World Bank President David Malpas said Wednesday, who resigned his post by the end of June, nearly a year before his five-year term is set to expire. Malpas was nominated to head the World Bank in 2019 by then-President Donald Trump. He previously served as chief economist at Bear Stearns for the six years leading up to the investment bank's collapse at the start of the Great Recession in 2008. Last September, Malpass came under increased pressure from the Biden administration to resign after he fumbled his answer to this question from David Get- Ellis, the New York Times climate reporter. Vice President Gore was here earlier today, and I don't know if you heard, but he referred to you in his remarks publicly on stage here as a climate denier. Would you clear the air? Do you accept the scientific consensus that? The burning of fossil fuels is dangerously warming the planet. You know, and some, the, I, I don't know all of the, all of the instances that you're talking about. I've been very pleased to have super strong U.S. government support across the board on the initiatives that we've been taking. Uh, some people that are critical, I think, are unfounded. They, they may not know what the World Bank is doing. In a statement, the climate justice group Oil Change International said, quote, the World Bank Group still funds more fossil fuels than any other multilateral development bank. Ending the support for oil, gas and coal needs to be priority number one in the next six weeks ahead of the bank's spring meetings, unquote. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Nermeen Sheik. Hi, Nermeen.
4: Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The
0: death toll from last week's massive earthquakes in Turkey and Syria is nearing 42,000 and continuing to rapidly rise. Over 36,000 deaths have been reported in Turkey, nearly 6,000 in Syria. The World Health Organization's described northwestern Syria as the, quote, zone of greatest concern. The area was already facing a humanitarian crisis after nearly 12 years of war. NATO Secretary General, Jan Stoltenberg has described the earthquakes in Turkey as the deadliest natural disaster in a NATO country since the alliance was formed. Survivors in Turkey say they've been left with nothing.
1: It was not like any other earthquake. The roads were destroyed. Our houses were demolished. There were no buildings left. Whole cities were flattened. Everything disappeared. We can feed ourselves here, but no one knows how we're going to live.
0: In the the Syrian city of Latakia, one mother described being rescued after five days. We were trapped for five days.
3: We couldn't move.
4: We were calling God to save us. Me and my son were calling God to save us. Thank God that we survived. But my daughter left us.
2: When I was in the corridor, I told my daughter there is an earthquake. She ran. May her soul rest in peace. Three of us were stuck in the
4: corridor, and then the rocks fell on us. My daughter directly died. May her soul rest in peace. Me and my son are alive. We were trapped. We couldn't move between the ceiling and rubbles. We couldn't move. We didn't have food or water. We
0: wanted water only. It was also dark, rubbles. We called for help a lot. No one heard us. We're joined now by two guests. Hisha Olsoy is deputy chair of the People's Democratic Party, a member of Turkish parliament, who is in southern Turkey. Um, it is in Diyarbakir, the largest Kurdish-majority city in Turkey, where he has been helping with disaster relief since the earthquakes. And in Gaziantep, Turkey. Osman Makbe is the CEO of Action for Humanity, the parent charity of Syria Relief. His recent piece for Middle East Eye is titled, What Else Should Happen Before the World Takes Syrian Suffering Seriously? We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uthman Makbe, we're going to begin with you. Now, we recognize there's something like a four second delay as you stand there on site in Gaziantep, which is really ground zero in Turkey. And yet, so many Syrian refugees were already there before the earthquake. Can you talk about what's happening there and what you think needs to happen?
3: Thank you very much. Uh, To be honest with you, I have seen in the last few days what I haven't seen in all of my life. I have been working in the humanitarian sector for the last 25 years. And what I have seen is totally devastating. Something I haven't seen in all of my life. As you know, the Syrians have been suffering from war and poverty for the last 12 years. And now they are suffering after this earthquake. I have seen people in the last few days without shelter, without food, without any kind of heat. They are in this very cold weather here in the southern part of Turkey and the north part of Syria. The Syrians and the Turkish people here in these areas, they need a lot of help. They need a lot of support. And I don't think the Turkish government can't cope with this huge disaster. So therefore, the international community need to do more. Just to give you an example of last year of the humanitarian aid plan, the international humanitarian aid plan, less than 50% of the promises, the pledges reached the Syrians. Now, we don't need we need 200%, 300% because this is another disaster. I met people yesterday who displaced three, four times. This is their fourth tent, fourth place that they displaced to. They came from city to city, then northern Syria, and now they came to the south for safety and security. But now they have nothing. So we have... Obligation. We have duty to support them. The international community needs to do more. It's not enough from the UK government to give only five million for this disaster. We are looking for more from, our, from the UK government and all other government, especially the United States government. We want more help. This is obligation. This is a duty. For all of us to come and help and support, as I said earlier, poverty, (coughs) war zone, and now earthquake hit the Syrians, and they are in a very dear situation, very difficult situation at this cold weather.
4: help, apart from, of course, you said uh, about the UK, whatever assistance they've given, which you say is inadequate. What other countries uh, in Europe uh, have contributed aid? And has the US uh, donated anything uh, to assist Syrians uh, impacted by this devastating uh, earthquake? Look, until now, we haven't seen much
3: and as you know, because the crossing were affected as, as well by the earthquake, so Thursday, Friday morning, some of the trucks started going inside Syria, especially from UN agencies. And as far as I know, these trucks related to projects previously agreed with different charities. And one of the charities is our charity because we received some of these trucks and that not related to the earthquake. After that, and after the crossing, was fixed. So some tracks and aid started going in. But as I said, if the UK only bleached five million, you can understand what about the other countries. And because of that, you can see that Turkey has big share. In figures, there was a report published by DI in the UK last year, shows that Turkey spent on humanitarian aid Around 5.5 billion, and this is higher than any other European countries. And this is after the United States, who spent around 10 billion for humanitarian aid. Our friends, the Europeans and the European governments, they need to do more in order to support the Syrians. The Syrians have been suffering from all kinds of disasters in the last 12 years, and we can say enough is enough. This is obligation, and we have to do our best to support them and find solution for this disaster, long-term solution.
4: Uthman, can you explain, uh, you write about this in the piece, what are some of the constraints uh, to getting aid uh, to northwest Syria, which has been so severely impacted. And uh, what are the uh, uh, governments or institutions that are making aid delivery more difficult?
3: Uh, number one, as you know, the crossing, because the as you know, in January, the Security Council renewed the crossing of uh, uh, of uh, one or two borders to, to, to Syria and uh, the main one is affected heavily by the earthquake I think uh, the, the Turkish authorities managed to fix it by I think by Thursday or Friday but this crossing is not enough and I think the main, one of the main problem is one crossing is not enough so I two days ago I think the security council allowed another two Uh, crossing uh, for humanitarian aid, I think, for three months, if I'm not mistaken. And so these four are really not enough. And this is one of the main problems. The second one is, you know, the supply chain between Turkey and Syria, because the Syrians inside depend on goods to come from Turkey. And because of the earthquake and... Uh, uh, the, the south of Turkey was affected heavily, so was a huge need here as well in the south of Turkey. So therefore, there was shortage as well of items and goods to go in. So therefore, because we, as a charity action for humanity, we have been working inside Syria for the last 12 years. So we have warehouse, we have a lot of things inside. But what we have finished in the first two, three days... After that, the prices have increased dramatically and the suppliers cannot supply us with more goods. So this means we need more crossing. Now we need more even uh, uh, ways to supply uh, the goods inside uh, Syria. And the third one, funding. So whatever we have raised as a charity from the community until now is not enough. Good. Thank God we have other INGOs now. We have been in discussion with them to support us and some of them, they already promised some good money. But as I said, all of that is not enough. Governments need to come forward and put more money to support the Syrians in the uh, north of Syria and the Turkish. Bear in mind, because this disaster now... Affected Turkey as well and the people of Turkey, 23 million of Turkish people, they are affected by this as well. So therefore we need to support both sides and we need to put more efforts inside Syria to stop
0: the suffering of the Syrians. Ufman, you are CEO of Action for Humanity. Our condolences not only for the entire crisis, but for the loss in your own Action for Humanity family of aid workers, which is what all of these groups are dealing with, their own health workers, not to mention doctors and nurses, hospitals collapsing. Um, But I wanted to ask your thoughts on lifting sanctions against Syria. Jane Ferguson writes in The New Yorker, the Assad regime and its ally Russia led are preventing international aid from entering rebel-held areas, though we've heard some aid has gotten through, the lifting of sanctions, and how difficult is it to get aid to the rebel-held areas, and how does that compare to aid in the Syrian government areas in Syria?
3: Yes, there is no doubt that the sanctions must be lifted. And we should have now, especially at this critical time, we should lift the the, the, uh, sanctions and allow the humanitarian aid to go in. We have seen from the first and second day trucks going to the regime area, but we haven't seen that at least since the fourth or fifth day. And still that is not enough for the northwest of Syria. We have to find different ways. Yeah, I'll tell you, for example, the, uh, um, the UK government has changed the system of immigration to allow the people of Ukraine to come in, which is great, because we have to support the Ukrainians, our neighbours, our friends, and that is another disaster. But at the same time, what they have done to allow Syrians to give them more flexibility, to work hard to lift the sanctions in order to the humanitarian aid to reach the Syrians. So this is sometimes where people feel the double standard. So we need to be, when it comes to humanitarian, it is, should be one standard. We deal with everyone on the same scale and the same standard. So therefore, they have all the Western government, and I hope the United States can lead as well on this regard, to find long term solutions for the syrians especially those you know in the north in the northwest of syria you have 4.8 million syrians 4.1 of them depends on aid depend on charities and the humanitarian agencies to come and to provide them with water food shelter and medicine this is too much Enough is enough. We as a charity have been working here for the last 12 years. Even this crisis affected us heavily. And all other humanitarian agencies who have been working here in, in, in the in the south of Turkey and the north of, of, uh, of Syria. So we lost four members of our staff and the entire their families. And we lost... Tens of members of families of all our staff in Turkey and Syria. We have around 500 staff inside Syria, 70 here in the south of Turkey. Every one of them has lost family member or members, colleagues and friends. And this is for the first time I see in my life that the first group of people who are affected by this crisis are the humanitarian. Therefore, the humanitarian, the humanitarians, we need to support them. We need to help them in order to continue their work. And to be honest with you, they still, despite of all the pain, they have, still going, doing the work. I have seen in my eyes that their their commitment and determination to continue helping others.
0: Well, Othman Makbe, we want to thank you so much for being with us, CEO of Action for Humanity, speaking to us from Gaziantep, uh, which is also known as Antep in southern Turkey, uh, to uh, Diyarbakir in Turkey where we're joined by Hishar Osoy deputy chair of the People's Democratic Party a member of the Turkish parliament representing Diyarbakir in southern Turkey the largest Kurdish majority city in Turkey where he's been helping with disaster relief since the earthquakes uh, Hishar Osoy can you describe what's happening where you are how similar is it to um, where Othman um, is and what you think uh, needs to happen right now
1: yeah uh, thank you for the opportunity uh, I am now in the in the we have only six uh, buildings that were collapsed and we have close to 500 people who lost their lives. But uh, a lot of people, of course, they left the city, many buildings are damaged. So when you compare with other places, of course, I would say it's even not comparable because the kind of destruction and devastation in in places like Adiyaman and Marash and Hatay and certain districts of Gaziantep, I mean, is really, really big. We are having a complete disaster here. It's a nightmare situation. Uh, Not only uh, so many people died, I mean, uh, probably around 40,000 now, these are the official records. But we know that there are still tens of thousands of people who are still under the rubble, and most of the rescue operations are already suspended. Uh, Millions of people were affected. Complete districts, complete towns are destroyed. So it's going to take a lot of time to recover, actually. Um in that sense, I totally agree with uh, Osman that, that, I mean, it's not really possible for the Turkish, I would say, government to respond to this crisis. In fact, in the first three days, state and governmental institutions, they even didn't exist. They weren't anywhere. It was just ordinary people, civil society organizations, political parties who mobilized to help people uh, uh, in need of urgent help, like food and shelter and those kinds of things. So... The situation is bad. It's going to take a lot of time. And and definitely there is a need for international support and solidarity. Uh, The government, unfortunately, declared emergency rule. So that was the first thing that they did. Rather than rescuing people from the rubble, they actually are now using emergency rule uh, powers to somehow take control over even the humanitarian aid. Uh, It's a very bizarre situation. The government is obstructing, actually, civil society as well as political parties to mobilize people for help. So uh, when, I, when I hear very deeply what Osman was saying about the need for like um, international community to support Turkey and Syria, uh, when you compare the amount of resources and money poured into, for example, the context of, of Ukraine, where, where where we have a war actually over the last year due because of the Russian invasion of unlawful um, invasion of course of, of of Ukraine there is a war there many people are dying probably not this many people that we have lost I mean in 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 the earthquake but when you see the kinds probably like hundreds of billions of dollars they were poured into that context, which is somehow militarizing the conflict, further militarizing the conflict. But but when it is security and defense and those kinds of issues, there are always uh, resources available, money is always available. But when it comes to like, a humanitarian situation like this, really, I mean, the numbers, the kind of funding that we are having from the international institutions is very, very limited. So more needs to be done. This is not a natural disaster in Turkey. It is a human-made disaster. Yes, earthquakes do happen. This is an earthquake zone. And since 1999, when we had a big earthquake in, in, in close to Istanbul, where, when we lost actually tens of thousands of people. Since then, a lot of scientists, experts, uh, geologists, they have been warning our governments to prepare the country, particularly these towns and the people there. Uh, for, for the earthquake, but nothing was done, and because we, we don't have safe buildings, we don't. We have a lot of corruption and bribery, unfortunately. There is no good uh, governmental inspection of the construction sector, which is the backbone of, of 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 Turkish economy. So there is a whole corrupt economy behind this whole disaster. That is why uh, we think of this disaster not as kind of a natural disaster. I mean, people don't die naturally, this is a massacre. And, and, and from the local governments to the central government, to many other institutions uh, who are responsible to actually build like, like safe houses for our people, that every citizen should have a right to a safe place to live. But we have seen like buildings only that were constructed like last year, two years ago, three years ago, despite the fact that we have on the paper strict regulations but nobody is following the rules and then an earthquake with a magnitude of 7.7 happens and we have tens of thousands of people dead in Japan for example an earthquake of 9.1 even couldn't be this 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 kind of uh, deadly so so that is why i think i mean i, I hope that people t- in turkey our governments will take this as a very serious warning because Turkey is an earthquake country. I mean, these earthquakes are going to happen. But we never take the lesson and we never prepare our towns and our people. And and in that sense, we all actually have a, a lot of responsibility
4: could you elaborate on that, why uh, you believe that Turkey, uh, despite this devastating earthquake of 1999, did not take steps? I mean, some have suggested uh, that in the last 20 years, in which Erdogan has been the leader, first as prime minister and then as president, there was an increasing centralization of power around the presidency, and that this somehow uh, has contributed uh, to Turkey's lack of preparedness could you respond to that whether you think that's true and if so how
1: yeah i mean uh, you see in turkey there is something that we call imar of uh, in turkish which is i think it can be translated as zoning permission or zoning amnesty so which means that i mean people construct buildings uh, not following the rules and you know uh, all kinds of buildings which are not properly built which do not have the, the the permission from the government or the local authorities these are just totally illegal settlements okay and then before every almost every election there is an amnesty for these people so all these unlawfully constructed uh, like unsafe buildings, they are actually, there is a, like the government pardons them and all of them, they become legal. This is a very, very major problem. It's not about the AKP government. Historically, over the last 50, 60 years, we have this practice. Every single government to get some votes, they declare these amnesties and they make legal, unlawfully built unsafe, like uh, houses, apartments. That is one thing. And the second thing is, uh, I mean, of course. I mean, the, the the housing, like the housing and these buildings, they are totally left to the mercy of a totally unregulated housing and construction market. So even the inspection of these buildings is being done by private companies. That is the most ridiculous thing. This is about the safety of your citizens. So you cannot really leave the inspection of those buildings to private companies. So in that sense, there should be some kind of public regulation of, of these buildings. So, for example, a, a, a construction company, actually, they can also have a, a building inspection company, and they can pay the, that, that company to inspect the buildings that they themselves are constructing. It is such a ridiculous situation. So so the local governments and the central government, they need to take responsibility and make sure that the houses that are being built are built properly based on the rules and, and punish those who, who, who do not follow the rules. Honestly, we think this is a massacre and there are perpetrators. Now the government is arresting a couple of contractors, some business people. But I mean, that is scapegoating, actually. And, and they are also attacking some poor Syrian refugees, uh, accusing them of like you know stealing stuff from the the, the rubble. Uh, so now we have the the immigrants to attack, right? The Syrian poor refugees, immigrants to attack, and then we have a couple of uh, uh, contractors, some business people who built those buildings. Yes, they do have some responsibility, but the majority of the responsibility falls on the shoulders of the government and the local governments who are authorized who are responsible to make sure that these buildings are built properly uh, as, as as safe was that is not happening and there is corruption there is bribery and i was in marash district uh, actually i was visiting uh, this family and they told me actually that in this earthquake zone in Pazarjik district of marash You can only build a five-story building, but their building was 10-story, and I asked them, I said, how this happened? They said, we just saw the mayor, and, you know, we could get permission. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's incredible. I mean, like, and everybody knows this, actually. The society knows this. I mean, the government, local government, everybody is a part of this. So that is why I think this is a collectively uh, carried out uh, massacre, mass Uh, yeah, mass murder, really. I mean, and there are perpetrators of this, and these are not just some you know, contractors. I mean, the government should be kept responsible. Hsia
0: Osoy, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Deputy Chair of the People's Democratic Party, member of the Turkish Parliament, representing Diyarbakir in southern Turkey, the largest Kurdish majority city in Turkey, where we've been helping with disaster relief, just came from a funeral. Next up, we look at the spiraling global economic crisis from Pakistan to Sri Lanka to Lebanon, where protesters today attacked six banks, setting some of them on fire. Back in 30 seconds. By This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheik. As debates continue in Washington over raising the debt ceiling and combating inflation, we take a global look at the growing international economic crisis as soaring inflation and devalued currencies leave nations across the globe confronting a catastrophic debt crisis. Lebanon's facing what the World Bank has described as, quote, among the most severe crises globally since the mid-19th century century. Earlier today, Lebanese protesters attacked at least six banks, setting some on fire as the Lebanese pound hit a new record low. Since 2019, the pounds lost 98 percent of its value. Protesters accused the Lebanese government and banks of failing to help the people.
2: What are you Lebanese people waiting for to go down and take your rights from this mafia of thieves and criminals that is ruling? Where are the human rights? There is no electricity, no water, nothing at all in this country. Don't they feel us while sitting in their palaces? They don't feel the people. They see us as sheep. We won't stay silent about our life's worth.
0: In addition to Lebanon, numerous other countries are facing similar crises. An Iraq protest recently broke out in out over the plummeting value of Iraq's currency, the dinar. In Egypt, the value of the Egyptian pound has shrunk in half over the past year while prices have soared. In Sri Lanka, authorities have just raised the price of electricity by 66 percent in an effort to get a bailout from the International Monetary Fund. Last year, Sri Lanka defaulted on its debt for the first time in its history. Pakistan is also facing its worst economic crisis, leading to gas shortages, power outages, rampant price increases. Meanwhile, in Argentina, inflation's hit nearly 100 percent to look more at this global, growing economic crisis. We're joined by Jomo Kwame Sundaram. He is a Malaysian economist at the Kazanah Research Institute in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. He was an economics professor and then U.N. Assistant Secretary General for Economic Development. In 2007, he received the Wasili Lantiev Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought. Professor Jomo Kwame Sundaram, thank you so much for being with us. Can you just Comment on what is confronting in the United States. We focus on inflation here, but the global catastrophe of inflation and what it means.
5: Thank you very much for having me, Amy. The world situation is very, very serious, Uh, not because we have a conspiracy to worsen the situation. But we have a confluence of events, two events in, two developments in particular threaten the world economy in very, very deep ways. Firstly, of course, we know that the U.S. Fed has raised interest rates over the last year, and this has had catastrophic consequences for many developing countries. Country, we have seen capital leaving uh, most developing countries, most countries in the global south, uh, and this has resulted in the, in their currencies depreciating and the U.S. dollar appreciating, that often raises the import, the cost of the imports, uh, which are often necessary for their for their subsistence. Um, the other major development, uh, which has been uh, the the other related uh, development, of course, has been that uh, the cost of debt has grown up tremendously, and the cost of debt um, going up. Basically puts uh, many economies into very serious difficulties because they are no longer able to service their debts, especially in this, in the, given the, the currencies are declining in value. Uh, Of course, some commodity prices have gone up, but many other commodity prices have not gone up. And this worsens the situation in very deep ways. So we have, of course, uh, we have as a consequence a very, very deep threats of recession in many of these economies. And then at the same time, we have uh, the stepping up of, of, uh, warfare, warfare, not only by military means, uh, which, are, which of course are very important and divert resource, precious resources away from uh, needed uh, purposes. Uh, dealing with climate change and so on and so forth, and instead divert them for military purposes. Germany, for example, has tripled uh, its military spending uh, within the last year. And we, as a consequence of this, what we see now is that economic sanctions have basically become the norm. When economic sanctions were taken against countries like uh North Korea or Cuba and so on, these were relatively small economies uh which had very little few uh, ramifications for the rest of the world. But now we have a situation where uh the, these uh, um, this uh economic sanctions have resulted in the increase in prices of fuel, increases in prices of uh, food, and increase of prices of fertilizer all this will have very very serious implications for the availability of affordable food particularly for poorer people in the world all over the place and and this combination of of war including especially by increasingly economic means um, is is going to exacerbate the situation one should also add that the uh, another war has started on a completely different front and that is the war against china the war against China began arguably about almost a decade ago, uh, with the pivot to Asia, uh, from, from Washington. But this has increasingly meant that many of the so-called supply chains, the global, the, the value chains and so on and so forth have been seriously disrupted. And this was, uh, of adversely affects all other countries as well. Because you know what what is supposedly produced in China is not produced in China alone. It's produced by all other by many other countries which are part of the value chains in which China um, may be dominant. So we have a situation where the the where the where um, strategic and military considerations are resulting uh, in great in more and more economic warfare. Uh, the polite term in in Washington, I believe, is um, economic. Uh, uh, statecraft, um, um, and, and this, of course, uh, threatens to, 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 um, threatens the world in very profound ways. If we look back at, sorry.
4: I was just going to ask if you could elaborate on uh, China in particular, which is now the largest government creditor uh, to a number of countries in the global south, but also the principal trading partner of many countries in the global south and not just the global south. So if you could talk about the significance, the centrality uh, of China in this crisis.
5: Yes, um, much of the... Much of the production from in China and from China going to the rest of the world uh, is actually uh, dependent on input, inputs from other parts of the world, especially from the global south. Uh, so, for example, we in Southeast Asia uh, produce a great deal. China is the number one trading partner and for some countries, the number one investor as well. Uh, the same is is increasingly true in many sub-Saharan African countries, and much of the growth in sub-Saharan Africa in, in the first decade of, of this century was largely due to the increase of demand from China and India and, and other uh, so-called new markets. And in even in Latin America, we find that the principal trading partner for many countries and sometimes even the principal investor uh, happens to be China. So the implications of sanctions against China are not directly affecting China as much as they are also uh, affecting other countries uh, in the global south. So the the fact that they are borrowing, that, that many of these countries are borrowing from China Um, is, is of course, a a matter of serious concern for these countries. Most uh, countries in the global south do not want to to take part uh, on either side of the Cold War, which is emerging. They would prefer to be non-aligned. And so there's a new role for what was once called non-alignment in the first Cold War. But this new non-alignment, of course, is very different because we are basically talking about very similar economies, which are run, dominated by, by what might be termed capitalist enterprises, some perhaps more state, enter, state capitalists, some less state capitalists, and so on and so forth. So th- this, this relationship with China is so central for many, many countries in the global south that any blow ag- intended against China Often adversely affects many other countries. uh, Sometimes even much more than they affect China.
4: And could you explain, Joma, what the impact is of having many more creditors than in the past? I mean, not just China, uh, the IMF, etc., but others involved as well. What are the effects of that on attempts to restructure uh, this
5: debt? When the U.S. Fed raised interest rates in the the, in the early nineteen eighties. Uh, this basically shocked the world economy and the world economy threatened to come to a grinding halt. Uh, President Reagan at that time uh, forced a reversal of the, of the Fed's policies and, and, the, and, the, and the U.S. economy picked up. But as we all know now, um, Latin America lost at least a decade. Some people would argue more than a decade. And uh, much of Sub-Saharan Africa uh, lost arguably two decades. Some even uh, suggest a quarter of a century as a consequence of the raising of interest rates and also the kinds of policies which were imposed uh, from the Washington-based so-called Bretton Woods institutions, uh, such as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. The consequence of that was to bring many of these economies to a grinding halt. Much of this was justified as ne- supposedly necessary to get these economies off to a fresh start but that fresh start never really came. As we now know, with the benefit of hindsight, what, when economies began to pick up, they began to pick up precisely for other reasons, uh, including the external demand from places like China and India, which I referred to earlier.
0: And finally, the human effects of this around the world. We started this conversation by talking about Lebanese protesters burning the banks, the massive inflation in Egypt and what's happening in Pakistan.
5: Well, what's happened in Lebanon, of course, was preceded by what happened um, months ago in 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 Sri Lanka and similar uh, episodes which have happened elsewhere. Uh, but but the ability to protest presumes a certain degree of ability, uh, you know, a certain degree uh, of of uh, of means to do so. In many situations, people are suffering often in silence, tr- trying to to make ends meet. Usually, invariably, when governments are forced to cut spending, they cut health spending, they cut social spending, they cut education spending, they cut other kinds of social provisioning, for example, uh, for girl children and so on and so forth. And very importantly, they cut uh, spending uh, for, for for example, trying to adapt uh, to global warming, global heating, uh, if you will. And many, and most countries in the global south are, of course, in the tropical or subtropical zone where the impact of global heating is worse. So we have a situation where you have a perfect storm. I'm not suggesting there's the deliberate conspiracy by between the US Fed and the Defense Department and NATO and the uh, economic, European Union and so on and so forth. But the effect is tantamount to, uh, to the effects of, of a, uh, of a seeming conspiracy. So, Many countries in the global south are looking elsewhere. They're looking at alternatives. They're trying to survive in this situation. They see a looming crisis ahead of them and they don't know how to avoid it. It's like b- being on the Titanic. You see the iceberg, but you don't know what to do about it.
0: Professor Joe Kwame Sundaram, we're going to ask you to stay with us for uh, uh, right after the show. We want to do part two of this conversation, leading Malaysian economists speaking to us from Kuala Lumpur. When we come back, we go to East Palestine, Ohio. Stay with us.
2: Destroy!
0: Destroy the Empire by Pachiman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Hundreds of residents in East Palestine, Ohio, packed into their first town hall meeting Wednesday night after a bomb train carrying hazardous materials derailed there last week, and a so-called controlled burn sent a mushroom cloud of toxic chemicals blended with fire and smoke into the air. The EPA said chemicals were released, quote, to air, surface soils and surface waters, Norfolk Southern backed out of the town hall meeting. EPA Chief Michael Regan's visiting East Palestine today as residents want the incident to be declared a federal emergency. Emily Wright is with us again with River Valley Organizing for an update from uh, Columbiana County, Ohio, a few miles from the derailment and explosion at East Palestine. We spoke to you earlier this week. Emily, can you talk about what happened last night? Uh, Norfolk Southern uh, did not come to address the people uh, um, what's happening right now? People are terrified as they see thousands of fish, of frogs dead. And yet the authorities are saying the water, the air is safe.
2: Uh, we've had, um, you know, thank you so much. I just want to thank your program for the coverage that you've done. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, things have been rapidly evolving over the last 48 hours. Um, as you know, Norfolk Southern put out a statement. Um, they were not coming to the meeting They cited their employees' safety. They said um, they made a to our local news station a statement that said that they were concerned that residents would basically cause physical harm to uh, their employees, and so they weren't going to come. I have not seen or heard one threat physically of violence or anything against Norfolk Southern. The only thing I've heard is that people want to know what's going on. Um, people were angry as the the forum kept changing. First, it was a town hall where elected officials were going to be there. Um, you know even from the state uh, you know in federal representation that questions were going to be answered over you know a, a couple hour period. Uh, that changed to being like an open house with tables where people could come ask questions if they wanted. And honestly, without Norfolk Southern being there, a lot of people's questions were answered. Um, We found out over the last 48 hours that there are several cities uh, south of the site um, that are experiencing chemicals in their water, uh, two of which uh, the butyl, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. um, But one of the chemicals in particular was in Steubenville, Ohio's water. They are an hour south, like over 60 miles south of East Palestine um, Toronto, Ohio, the same south of them. In Moundsville, West Virginia, which is in the panhandle, um, they have had pictures of the river turning turquoise from the chemicals. So um, the fallout is really beginning to happen. The instructions were very vague from each city. They basically said they think the levels are low um, and they think the water's safe, that they think. Um, people closer, like around where I am and in East Palestine, have been told to drink bottled water. Um, I fortunately work with a lot of people that have dealt with with this, and the first thing they told me to do was buy bottled water um, when this happened, before even the control release. So um, residents are understandably angry, upset. Norfolk Southern just came out this morning um, on our local news program, I apologize. And um, an employee was interviewed, and we found out that the train that derailed in East Palestine um, was broke down in Madison, Illinois, on February 1st. And they believed the train was broke down because the contents were too heavy that it was carrying. And Norfolk Southern apparently was um, warned by employees that that train was too heavy and that something like this could happen. Um, so they were having issues with the train anyway. Um, we know the EPA director's coming down today to the site because he wants to encourage that everything's going status quo. Um, but again, like we've said time and time again, for almost two weeks, we were told only about air, that it was safe. Um, water, soil, and surface was basically told it was, you know, surface wasn't being done, water and soil was, but it's ongoing
0: Um, Emily, we have 20 seconds, your final comment.
2: Yeah, people were let back in their homes. So um, we really need a federal emergency to be declared. We need um, our governor, DeWine. We absolutely need him to, when he talks to President Biden's administration today or tomorrow, to tell them that we need FEMA in here there are short-term and long-term effects that will be some of the gravest that this nation has ever seen in a train derailment.
0: Well, Emily Wright, we're going to continue to follow this story. Development director for River Valley Organizing in Ohio, speaking to us from Portsmouth, Ohio, just next to East Palestine, where the train derailment took place. The train was two miles long with toxic chemicals. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Af, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh.